welcome to Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us today. Whether you belong to our community or you're just checking out our community, you live in the Toronto area or you live somewhere else in the world, you are most welcome. What's been so interesting to observe as the pandemic continues around the world, it's what people are Googling, what people are interested in as they're trying to find things to do. And one of the largest things that people are Googling globally is about plants, planting, and specifically gardening. They want to do something, whether it's education with their kids. Some people, I'm sure, were afraid there was going to be no food and they were about to tear up their whole garden, their whole yard, that is, and turn it into a garden. But we decided to do it just for fun with the kids. And so we started a mini garden on our kitchen table. We're growing celery and romaine lettuce out of the stumps we used to throw out in the compost. We didn't even know you could grow things out of those stumps. And every day we come down and every day they're growing and there's new life. And it's amazing by the end of the day, especially when it's sunny, they've grown exponentially. Now, if you think about gardening, if you think about plants in general, what again, of course, is amazing is the dirt uh, the rain, some of the time the sun, and the worms are just there. I mean, God's provided them. And if you want to build a garden, you need to show up, you need to plant some plants, and then you need to tend the garden, but the rest of it, it's there. And that is why we chose the images we did in this series. That's actually why gardening is one of the best images for spiritual practices. As a Christian, if you are one, we are called to tend the garden of our own spiritual lives, uprooting bad habits, taking out the weeds, and replacing them with the practices that guarantee our growth. God provides the rain, the dirt, the worms, that's the grace in our lives, but we have to show up in the garden, we have to help plant the garden, and we need to tend the garden. And like real gardening, the spiritual gardening we're talking about, it takes time. It takes effort. You have to be intentional. And what's even more helpful is this. At much of the, in much of the situations, we're in control. In other points, we're totally out of control. And that's the point. That's the practicality and the mystery of this whole conversation. Now, as we've been learning in our church over the last few weeks, and really over the last few years, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of serving in power like Jesus did because Jesus used spiritual gifts under the power of the Spirit, then if, again, it's an if, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, a Christian, then spiritual practices are a guaranteed place of transformation and a place of hearing. Spiritual practices, let me repeat this again, never make you a Christian. Spiritual practices don't get you a relationship with God. They don't impress God. They're the very things, though, that place us in his presence so we can be transformed, encouraged, rebuked, and hear what we're called to do. They bring health and a relationship we're already in that we never earned. So today we're going to look at the second formal practice in this series— it's the practice of confession. Now, to fully understand this practice, to engage in this practice, we actually all need to go back to the very beginning, for that's actually where our problem started, and why, as we live in what we call the now and not yet, we need to deeply engage in this ongoing, holy, freeing habit. It reads like this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
He said to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden or any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Interesting, by the way, God never told Eve that she couldn't touch it. Just she couldn't eat from it. So she's already exaggerated. And so the devil knows there already is room and place for his lie. Well, he gives the lie this way. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. There it is. You as a human can be like God. Disobedience brings blessing. Breaking God's law is the best thing you can do. It will be the most significant decision you can make to bring a positive result in your life. Now, of course, the devil is misquoting and denying and slandering and exaggerating, meaning to seduce. Now, the promise, the option is to be like God. That's the temptation. You will be more than you are and more than God intended you to be. Now, the shock, of course, and the irony is that Satan himself has already tried this and has failed. It is impossible. He is the embodiment of the lie and the failure. I love years ago when I discovered this one quotation. Deification, that is to become like God, is a fantasy difficult to repress and a temptation very hard to reject. In the woman's case, she needed only to give in by shifting her commitment from doing God's will to doing her own will. Whenever one makes their own will crucial and God's revealed will irrelevant, whenever autonomy displaces submission, and, and obedience in that person when a finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations imposed on them by their creator. Well, that's sin. That's sin. Well, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then both of their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So sin is not only breaking God's law. Sin is not only breaking God's word. It's also breaking the covenant with the one you're already in relationship with. It's the smearing of a relationship. It's an attack on the one who created you. It's actually a declaration that the creator does not know better and the created does know better. Well, then it says in verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the coolness of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, and the Lord God called out to Adam, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And catch this, I was afraid, scared, fearful, terrified, anxious, troubled, naked, guilty, exposed, innocence is now removed. Now I've preached this before, let me do it again. Who are they hiding from? God, and, and what's the embodiment? What's the very DNA of God? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, the very first result of the fall was hiding from love himself. 
And we've been hiding from God, by the way, ever since. We are trying to avoid God at any cost. The human family is filled with so many acts of brilliant hiding to the point where we have deceived ourselves and we have told us that our acts of hiding are actually ways to find God. Uh, One of the greatest acts of hiding, which most of the population on earth is involved in, is religion. Religion says, if I'm good enough, kind enough, if I do enough spiritual actions, I'm building up a bank account with God. And because I do so many good things, he will love me because I am good. And when I die, the scales will show that I was better than I was worse. And God will let me in. Do you notice? That's an act of hiding because you're your savior, not him. Uh, Secularism is the same thing. We declare we can do life by ourselves and we don't need something spiritual. So we fill our life with sex or money or relationships or power or education or beauty or or followership or, or, or some people in between both poles invent spirituality, trying to find purpose to have rest for the soul. Now, all of these things, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them neutral, they all become acts of hiding when they're used to replace walking with God in a personal way through Jesus. And what folly and lunacy and hubris to think that we can actually flee from God and hide from God, or we can be our own saviors. How sad that we think we must do this. How terrifying that we think we know better. But can you hide from God? Like, really? Can any of us hide from God? No, of course not. The psalmist got this right in Psalm 139.7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, well, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. But it's into that catch-22, into that rock and hard place, into that chosen hiddenness that God comes anyway. Love stronger than fear. Love stronger than chosen guilt. Love stronger than chosen hiddenness. Love stronger than our own blindness. God loves you. God loves us. That's why the most famous verse on earth is John 3:16. For God so loved the world, the place where hiddenness is everywhere, that he sent his one and only son where? Into all of that hiddenness, that whoever finds him, believes in him, accepts him, will not perish, but have what? Eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God comes for us, When we don't want him, God comes for us when we cannot get to him. He walks back into our hiddenness, and if and when we embrace Jesus, he gives us forgiveness, he makes us clean, and he restores us. See, by one tree in Eden, we chose ruin and hiddenness. By this next tree, which of course is the cross, we get paradise back. We fully get to see who Adam and Eve walked with in the coolness of the day, and were made clean by the person of Jesus himself. That's why Paul, generations later, wrote this amazing verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you're a seeker today or a skeptic or, or, or spiritual or you don't consider yourself anything, if you want to understand Christianity, here it is. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, by him, we might become the righteousness of God. What good news, what great joy. Remember, salvation is transferred, it's never earned. Salvation is free, it's not earned. It's given, it's not bought. Salvation is is a display of love. It's never gained by duty. Salvation also is a declaration of faith. Now, here's where the practice of confession comes home. For many of us who are listening today, we, we who are Christians, do you realize that your faith journey, our faith journeys began 
with this act, confession. When we chose to say we needed God's help, and we came out of hiding and stood naked before God and admitted our sin and asked for help, he changed us through his son's work. That's why the famed verse about connecting with God is Romans 10, 9. If you, notice, confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. He is who he is. And you believe in your heart, God the Father <coughs> raised him from the dead. You will be saved. But now we need to keep walking in the freedom that was a gift in the first place. We need to keep walking in the transparency. We don't need to hide from God anymore since we are now perpetually forever under Jesus' work. And we don't need to even hide from each other anymore. And this is where the spiritual practice of confession comes in and comes home. The spiritual practice of confession is a guaranteed place of transformation because it continues to confront our want to hide. It confronts our fearfulness. It confronts the idea that we are owned by guilt when we're not and lets us continue walking in the relationship that Jesus has given us with the father that he had. Now let's start with a definition because we always need to make sure we're on the same page using the same language to have the same conversation. Confession, one wrote, is sharing our deepest weaknesses and failures with God and trusted others so that we may enter into God's grace and mercy and experience his ready forgiveness and healing. Hold on, hold on. Did you just catch that? <laughs> deepest failures to God and others? Did you just feel Adam show up in yourself? No, no, I'm afraid. I, I, I'm naked. I need, I need to hide. Even many of us who are, are, who are Christians and trust God and love him say, you know, no, no, I, I'm fine. I'm fine. I have no problem talking to Jesus about my deepest sins and weaknesses, but I don't need anyone else. It's just me and Jesus. Oh, no, no. Hold on. Not true. See, this practice directly is connected to another practice called fellowship. See, the Bible, time and time again, reminds us and calls us to be with each other, to mourn together, to laugh together, to take communion together, to worship together, but also to confess our sins to God and each other. One of the best summaries of this comes from the book of James. James 5.14 reads like this, Is any one of you sick? Now, sickness doesn't just mean uh, COVID-19, uh, cancer, uh, AIDS, though all true. Actually, in the original context, it means any form of sickness. Do you have a personal incapacity, a limitation? It has a broad sense, which can be physical, emotional, mental, uh, sexual, spiritual. It can mean illness. It can mean mental illness. It can mean struggling with a sin. It can mean a cold heart. So as followers of Jesus, during a troubled moment, one is called to pray personally, absolutely. But then James says, he's about to say this, we who are weak, we who are Sikh, we are actually commanded to ask others into our situation. And again, especially in the West, even as Christians, we tend to shut down right here. We believe that weakness and sin and frailty needs to be covered and hidden and cloaked to keep up an appearance that I'm a good, confident Christian. And James says, no, 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 that's hiding. You're being Adam and Eve again. You don't, you don't need to do that. See, the, the real moment of freedom starts when we drop pride. When real, genuine humility is in the room, you make the ask for help. 
And notice, you're going to see this. It first starts to talks, it talks about elders and then everyone. But notice, the leadership doesn't come to you. Your will matters. Our willingness to submit and connect matters. It's got to be volitional. You need to make the ask for help. So he's about to say, come to your shepherds and your church community and ask them to intercede for you for your what? Well-being. So he says in verse 14, if you're sick, you should call on the elders of the church uh, to pray over and, and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And some of us are like, hold on, John. I thought this was a whole conversation about confession and sin. No, no, we're going to get there. So it says, call upon the leaders to come beside you. And then they're supposed to do two things. Uh, they're going to pray over you and they're going to anoint you with oil. Now, most of us go, I get the prayer thing, and I've preached this before, but some of you are newer, like, what's up with the oil? Like, does it have to be extra, extra virgin? Does it have to be from, you know, the Holy Land? Does it have to have frankincense and myrrh in it? Can I use Crisco? Does butter count? Like, what is all of this? Okay, well, first of all, in ancient times, oil was used as medicine, but that's not what's really being referenced here. Oil was a sign that had both a supernatural and symbolic element when used by the people of God under the authority of the true living God. It doesn't matter the type of oil. Now, it becomes supernatural in the sense that when an object is dedicated, it can become a conduit of spiritual power, but it never contains spiritual power. That's magic. We don't do that. But time and time again in the Old and New Testament, you see this with oil here. You see this with uh, the aprons and the handkerchiefs of Paul. You see this with the tabernacle, the temple. The high priest had something called an ephanod. It becomes a place of encounter, but nothing is living in it. It's supernatural when dedicated to the true living God. But it's also symbolic because oil represents the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament and in the New, but specifically the Old, when something was consecrated, made holy unto the Lord, a king, a prophet, or sacred furniture, for example, in the temple, it was all anointed with oil. So this is what we're supposed to do with each other. Now, beyond the oil, it's the next two phrases that are important. A, it's done in the name of the Lord. In other words, it's calling upon Jesus's power, God the Father's power, and the community that's doing it is it doing it in his power and his name. And the point is the people and the oil only become vessels that God chooses to heal. But it's still about God, his power, his actions, never ours. Then it says in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And here's the second phrase. And the Lord will raise them up. And if they've sinned, ah, they'll be forgiven. So first of all, he says, we anoint people with oil and then we pray in faith. We fervently ask God to show up. But in that fervency, we acknowledge that God is sovereign. God has the final say. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God. And then the phrase, the Lord will raise him up. So that's how we live between the now and not yet. Many times we should expect people to be healed. And what's amazing in this church, through elders prayer, we've seen this healing prayer. Those who have the spiritual gift of healing, those in releasing prayer, and just many times people praying over other people. We have so many accounts of genuine moves of God where people have been miraculously healed. So we should come expectant because God does love healing. We shouldn't be, well, God, you're never going to heal. I'm going to pray because it's the right thing to say, but I know you're not going to do anything. No, 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 no. But if someone is not healed, that's where other people go off the deep end and say, well, see, you didn't have enough faith or you weren't fervent enough in your prayer or that. No, no, stop. It's the phrase, the Lord will raise them up. That is a direct reference to Jesus's resurrection. As Jesus was raised from the dead, 
so we will be raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is a guarantee of our resurrection and healing is fully assured and guaranteed in the end in the resurrection. Much of the time, God heals in the now. Sometimes he chooses not to. And then we are assured all of us will be healed in the end through the resurrection. Now, interestingly, during that process, James says, and oh, by the way, if someone has sinned, and what James is saying is some of our suffering, maybe even much of our suffering, is connected to sin. Now, not all weakness, you can't draw a line from I have cancer because I sinned personally. Be real careful. But what he is saying is there are multiple cases where our sin is the root of the sickness. So in this process, we're supposed to ask, have you sinned? And you're supposed to confess sin. Here's the point. Confession of sin is key to the process of healing. And that's why this next verse, James 5.16, is so critical. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you will be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. As one person wrote, mutual confession of sins in James's mind is a habitual practice. Why? Because it always will bring healing. Now, you see this here. Well, leaders do have a unique spiritual authority, office authority in this case. James makes it clear in verse 16 that we have the privilege between all of us as Christians, and we bear the responsibility as Christians to confess our sins to each other. When a person comes into the light and confesses and repents of sin, great power is released, or as one ancient cry goes, great is the power of repentance. It brings healing. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus' best friend wrote. Uh, the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Did you catch it again? Fellowship. There's that other holy habit. The regular gathering of other Christians. And part of fellowship is not just hanging out and having sandwiches or having a Starbucks together when we can do that again. It's actually confessing our sin to each other. And then he says in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we do confess our sins, verse 9, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So to confess sin is not merely admitting sin, but, but agreeing with God's view of sin and actively going to seek his forgiveness and we know, according to 1 John 1, 9, when we do it, he's faithful and just because of his death and resurrection. He has the right ability and want to cleanse us from, notice this, this is so important for some of you today, all unrighteousness. There is nothing too dark, too evil, too perverted, too gross that Jesus did not die for. Jesus wants to hear the confession of everything to free you from everything because that's why he died. So confession, as the old phrase goes, is good for the soul. But there's more. <laughs> confession is good for the unity of a church. Because if there are no secrets and no hiddenness, then the Holy Spirit gets to do what he wants. Confession is good for your relationship with God because then there's no muck in the conversation. Confession is good for your interactions at business and in life with spouses or kids or friends. 
I ever had that experience where you've been eating and you get something in your teeth and you can't get it out? Anyone want to put that on the chat? Oh yeah. And it's so bad and it's stuck in there and you don't actually have a toothpick. Have you noticed what you end up doing as a human being? It just drives you crazy. You start like getting anything, a knife, a fork. You start getting like, you bend paper and you're like sticking it in your mouth or a business card. Like it's the most unsanitary thing, the grossest thing. People watching us probably are horrified because we are so irritated by that thing in there that we're using any utensil, straw, dividing them in half. You know what you've done before. We've all done this. When you choose not to confess sin to God and others, that's what's happening to you spiritually. It's stuck in your teeth. And most of the time, we try covering it up, ignoring it, or trying to get it out with the wrong tools, with the wrong things. Confession is the thing. I love what Richard Foster said when he said, the discipline discipline of confession brings an end to pretense. God is calling into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering graces of Jesus. Jesus calls us into freedom. Jesus lived and died and rose again to give us life. And he says what? Life in the full. And this is a great moment, a great opportunity for freedom. Then the question we ask, well, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I do this well? Okay, let me give you six thoughts that are going to help you in the practice of confession. Number one, we can't handle the weight of secrets. It kills our soul. It kills our relationships. It poisons everything. It affects how you view life. It was the great Psalm, Psalm 32.3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, did not cover up my iniquity. And, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to God, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So the first thing is this. Choose freedom. Freedom over hiddenness. Freedom over secrets. Grace over unforgiveness. And yes, like I've just said, Jesus will forgive you. Jesus has forgiven you. There is nothing too small or too big. Jesus is not going to be shocked by the confession. He was there when you did it. He was also there when things were done to you. He's not shocked by any conversation. We cannot live under the weight of the guilt. We're not made to. Number two, well, then how do I practically do this? Right. Well, I love when one wrote, for a good confession, you need to do three things. Three necessary actions. Number one, an an examination of your conscience. There has to be sorrow and a determination to avoid that sin. So let's start with examining our conscience. We've got a problem already. If we go to examine our conscience, much of the time we're still going to get this wrong because we all know this and the Bible is pretty clear about it. We're sinful. In other words, we're skewed by our, by our own perceptions. We have blind spots. We can even deci- de- deceive ourselves and call good things bad and bad things good. So when you want to confess, the first thing you need to do is pray and ask God him- himself, the Holy Spirit, to expose you so you can see yourself truly through his eyes. Because either we'll say, well, that thing's not really that bad, or it's not a sin, or I'm not that bad and I'm just fine. Or the reverse will be true. I'm nothing, I'm garbage, I'm a worm. And we cannot rely on self-examination alone because we'll end up either playing down things or playing up things. What we need is God's examination. We need God's view. 
So how do you do this? Well, how you get involved in examining your conscience is you pray what they call the prayer of examine. And remember, when you ask God to expose you, God is what? Everyone say it with me at home. Love. You can put the little emoji hearts right now on the side. He's love. So he's never going to expose us to destroy us. He's going to expose us to heal us. You say, well, what's a prayer of examine? Here it is. Psalm 139, 23. Search me, God. Know my heart. You test me, you, God, test me, and you know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and then lead me into the way everlasting. So what you do is you pray that, and then what I do when I do this, I was doing it this week, is you sit with the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, or Galatians 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You literally pull out this list and you let God's word expose you. The Holy Spirit's there because you've invited him. And then you say, have I committed adultery this week? Have I been lustful? Have I stolen, literally stolen or stolen someone's reputation? You just go through and you begin to list the things you have done. And and lots of times the Holy Spirit will even bring things to your mind. And so you need the Spirit of God and the Word of God to be the standard to expose. And then at that moment, then after you've got a list, you then need to confess. And, And by the way, let me help all of us not keep hiding. Lots of people, when they start practicing confession, think they're doing it, but they're still holding back because they generally confess. They generalize their confession. They're not specific. So, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I was angry, God. Forgive me this week. Versus, no, no, I lost it on this person. And I said these things. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I lust. Oh, no, there's a big difference. I lusted and no, no, I went and I looked at this style of pornography, God. Why specific? To beat ourselves up? No, no. I love when one person said, a generalized confession might save us from humiliation or shame, but it will not ignite inner healing. So we need to pray the prayer of examine. We need to let God's word expose us. We need to say, Lord, I'm sorry, and then begin to walk in the other direction. Here's the next thing I need to share. Well, wonder if I don't feel like doing it, or I don't feel anything when I do it. That's fine. Remember, the other name for a holy habit or spiritual practice is a spiritual discipline. You do it because it's right. Your feelings are secondary in this conversation. This is a standard of truth we must do for our own freedom. Well, the next question you're probably asking, because I did originally, is, well, with who? Like, whoa, whoa, this is like real close. Jesus, maybe I could tell him everything, even though, let me just stop and say, lots of you have never specifically, as Christians, really listed stuff in a very specific way. You need to. You'll be free. But how do you do this with someone else? Well, all Christians, we saw in James 5, can hear each other's confessions, but not all should want to or are equipped to do this well. So you don't want to sit down with someone and begin to confess your sins, and they go, oh, no, 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 you're not that bad. I mean, I know you, and you think you're, no, 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 you're fine. You definitely don't want to sit with someone who goes, I know the Bible says that's a sin, but you know, we live in 2020, we have Androids and iPhones, so we know better now, and we've got psychology now, so no, no. You don't want someone justifying or contradicting the scripture in your life. The other thing you don't want is someone going, you did what? 
oh my gosh, I don't even know, you're just so disgusting. Like, that is not what you want when you're confessing sin. But why is it important not just to sit with God, but someone else and confess your sin? Here's, here, here's why. You need a human being to look you in the eyes and declare you're forgiven. You need to have someone look at you and say, you're not alone. You actually need to have someone sit with you or through Zoom or Google Hangouts in this moment and say, you're not the only one who struggles with this. You need to do this with a safe, trusted Christian. What's the next thing? Well, here's the next thing. Confession helps us to avoid it next time. It stops the ongoing spiral. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Here's something else I want to give you. Here's the number six. As a person who has the great privilege and weight of hearing confessions all the time from people, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 is one of the most important verses that I always speak about with other pastors and leaders, but actually it's true for all of us. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. Okay, so that's critical, gently. Not, oh my gosh, you're so disgusting. Ah, gently. But watch yourself, or you yourself might be tempted See, here's where I've seen so many leaders and also just other Christians fall. They're sitting with someone and someone's being very honest and open about their sin. But the sin that's being confessed is the sin that the person hearing the confession is struggling with themselves. And they haven't worked out their own stuff. So they become excited or tempted by the confession. So be really careful when you're hearing confession that you, are, you yourself are not being lured in or, or, or excited by what you're hearing. We don't want the practice to become the falling point. Some of you might be saying, well, what do you say when someone tells me their stuff? Well, this is what I say. I'm a sinner saved by grace too. I hear your confession. Thanks so much for sharing. And I know that Jesus said on the cross that it's finished and he meant it. So it's finished. You're forgiven. First John 1 9 says, if you confess, he's going to forgive you of all unrighteousness. So I cannot declare your forgiveness, but I can declare that Jesus and the Bible declare you forgiven. So I say yes and amen. And always, 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 I take a moment to remind them there is nothing too dark, too vile, too gross, too evil that Jesus cannot overcome. You know what's so beautiful? When you do this in church community over a long period of time, and not just with some, you know, not someone far, far away, but someone in community. When you see them the following week, that is when we were meeting. But when you see them again, and now they know you know, and you treat them exactly the same, and you love them, and you take communion with them, and you hug them, and you hang out, you are literally embodying grace. But if you do it from a distance, you still can hide. But if you do it here, in community, well... You're not only held to a higher standard and accountability, you also see the beautiful forgiveness week in and week out of people just loving you. So what's the takeaway uh, as we're in the middle of this series? Number one, for you who again are joining us, who are seekers and skeptics and you who have not deeply connected uh, yet uh, with God through Jesus, you, your only response is confession of Jesus. 
to confess that Jesus is Lord, that you believe in your heart. He lived, he died, he rose again. God raised him from the dead. And you need to say, I repent of my sins. I confess I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. You are Savior and Lord. You have to help me uh, be forgiven. I need to talk to God. I need eternal life. Forgive me. That's what you need to do. All of us this week can pray the prayer of examine. We can go back to the Psalms, pray that, pull out the Ten Commandments or the fruit of the Spirit and just begin. And then, of course, I'd encourage you to confess your sins to each other, even through a Zoom call or a Google Hangouts or a FaceTime. Now, some of you are going, John, I I really, it scares me, but actually, I really would love to do that. But I actually don't have anyone I know who is trusted. What could I do? Well, I was talking to our prayer pastor this week, Pastor Natalie, and, and we want to help you even in this virtual moment. Uh, if you send an email to prayer at sanctuschurch.com, or if you go to our website and you just scroll down under the prayer section, it says, I need prayer button. Whether you send the email or press that button and leave a message, you just need to say, I would like someone, I'd like to sit with someone virtually and confess sin. And we have all these prayer people in our church that have been trained and do this all the time who would love to sit with you, hear your confession, and pray for you. We, we'd love for you to do that. Some of you are like, actually, John, you know, I, I don't fully understand this, but because I've remained hidden so long and I've done so much stuff, I feel there's not just sin in my life, but there's supernatural darkness connected to it that feels like not human. Well, if that's you, then you just need to go to sanctuschurch.com slash restoration prayer. And that's the process we use to help people not only confess sin, but also get free from supernatural stuff that's evil. And so this week could be a profound week of freedom for our church. This season could be a profound unearthing of weeds and actually could till the soil of the garden of our church and actually could produce such amazing new life that when we do regather will be stunned how much growth there has been. So wait, why don't we just take a moment to end this, this service, uh, this sermon moment in prayer. And let's pray about it. Number one, God, we're afraid. We're afraid. I'm afraid half the time about this too. To confess sins to you and others. So number one, God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, send the Holy Spirit to confront And reassure us we don't need to be hidden anymore. Number two, I I pray with my friends who have not met you. And if you've never met God through Jesus, this is when you do it. You say, Jesus, I believe you lived. I confess you are Lord. You are the son of God. You are perfect. You lived a perfect life. You died a perfect death. You rose from the dead. And you're the only way back to God the Father. You're the only Savior. I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe you've been raised from the dead. Would you save me? I confess that. I need your saving. Make me clean. I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to become a Christian. For all of us, Lord, help us to do the prayer of examine. And when we do it, would you guard the space so our own hearts are the evil one? Do not accuse us inappropriately. And lastly, we pray that you'd begin to supernaturally superintend conversations between people, safe people, right people, so there could be freedom and confession could start taking place in a new way. We dedicate this this discipline to you. We dedicate this gift to our church and we pray for great growth in this part of the garden. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And we all sit together. Amen.